0: So, if you are uh, with us for the first time, uh, you will uh, uh, you're coming only, only the second the second sermon in. But if you've been here with us for a few, few weeks, or of course, if you're our regulars, then you know we are in the, the book of Revelation, and we are going through the seven letters that Jesus wrote or spoke to his church through the Apostle John. And so, last week we met uh, uh, we, we we sort of were situated with the with the book of Revelation, the setting of Revelation, and the fact that. Uh, that God speaks to us in his triune nature through his word and his word is all about Jesus and the gospel is central and all of that. Well, we're doing this sort of, a, I guess, slow, two sermons through the book of Revelation is not that, the, the first chapter of Revelation is not that slow, but, but a, a two-sermon introduction before we even get to the letters so that we can be rightly oriented when it comes to Jesus speaking to us. We should be rightly thinking about who it is that is speaking how he thinks of us, how we ought to think of ourselves as we receive the word from him who speaks to the churches. And so we have now come up to uh, Revelation chapter one and verse nine through 20, having done the first eight verses last week. And now we get to this vision that John has of Jesus as the son of man. So you follow along in your own Bible. I'm gonna be reading from the ESV. And this is what the word Of the only true and living God says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and in his face was like, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying: Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. And the seven lampstands are themselves the seven churches. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst this evening. Amen. Well, there's going to be uh, many points, probably about six, like we did last week. Rapid fire points as we go through this, because if we try and explain all of the Old Testament explanation of every single verse that we go through here and every single imagery... We will be here all night and we'll have a Utica situation, somebody fallen down dead, and we'll have to pray him together uh, back alive before we keep on preaching. We don't have time, so we're going to stick to about an hour and a half and uh, get through through this in a little bit of pace. First of all, what, what I want us to see is that John wants the churches to see that he himself is a partner with them in the tribulation that they are about to be undergoing, and some of them are currently. John wants the churches to know that he is a partner with them. He says this in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John wants us to know against the idea of a lot of prosperity ideology out there today that God's most blessed men and women are not the people with necessarily the most shiny houses and suffering free life. But God's generals are the ones that he sends into the heat of the fire. And even his last living, possibly at this point, definitely the one who would live the longest, John. Even this apostle, the person, if anybody on earth gets to escape persecution, surely it's the apostle John. And yet he himself is in the fire of persecution. He's a partner just like the other Christians. He's a brother just like everybody in the other churches. There's really no distinction except for scripture writing authority. He's just like them, and he's like them in very specific ways. I, I like, firstly, uh, just as we get our mind around where he said he is, he said he's on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, the, the island of Patmos was, um, was kind of like Alcatraz, uh, in the, if you know of that, in the sense that it was a prison island. It was a large rock in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, uh, Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that, that acted like a pretty secure island. I mean, you throw people on there, you don't really have to do a lot of border security. Um, and, and so the, 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 the enemies of the states and the, the horrible criminals would be sent there, and that's where John was sent. Because church history tells us, um, it might have been Nero, it might have been somebody later, had uh, tried to persecute him and then brought him in front of the the, Colosseum type situation and had a a, a vat of oil burned uh, to boiling point and then they threw him into this large vat of oil and it didn't burn him. And he swam around and he proclaimed the Lord Jesus from it. It's a pretty cool pulpit. But he, in that, uh, says that the, the, the Caesar became very superstitious, well, was very superstitious, became very afraid, and so just punted this guy to Patmos. He did not want anything else got to do with John because he was too scared. So that, that's what, the, what, what we're told. All of this happens, the, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ Um, is is the fact that he refused to be silenced. The word of God that he was preaching, he refused to be silenced about it. Acts 5, we saw that in John. He refused to be silenced by the the religious establishment. Uh, We see that the the apostles and their preaching about the gospel was called a religious heresy because of their explanation of the resurrection and all of this, the, the crucified Messiah. None of that was was allowed by the, by the Greeks and the, the Romans, they were uh, understood to be a political threat because they kept on saying that Jesus, and only Jesus, is the Lord over all. Well, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the Son of God that brings peace on earth, are the titles that the Romans called for the Caesar. So when they were professing Jesus as Lord, now they just made themselves enemies of the state and Rome got involved as a political enemy. For all of these reasons, they were called... Um, Acts 16 tells us that the complaint against the Christian missionaries was they were turning the world upside down. We need to recover that kind of Christian witness, turning the world upside down so much that the mayors and the people of the city get frustrated with us. Anyway, that's what had happened. And so he was kicked off to this island called, called Alcatraz. And I love the preaching is what got him in trouble. And the preaching is what he keeps on doing. He keeps on doing the very thing on the island that got him sent to the island in the first place. I'm going to guess that that actually maybe, maybe some of us in a room this size um, with this many different kind of colors and backgrounds, maybe some of us have come from a nation or a culture and society where your family members or you were legitimately politically persecuted, maybe put in prison or held under house arrest or something like that for your belief and evangelism of the gospel. But I'm going to say probably 90% of us have no clue what that's like Probably the closest we can get is something like Facebook jail. You have any, any common uh, uh, colleagues that have ever spent any time in the clink in Facebook? Yeah, that's great. And, and now, 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 I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm not going to meet John in heaven and say, I get you, man. I was three days in Facebook prison for saying something about abortion. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm not going to say that. But, but what I mean is, the gist is, you go there, and if you're ever allowed off, the lesson, the one lesson you were supposed to have learned is stop doing the thing that got you sent there. That's, that's the big message you're supposed to get from Patmos. That's the message they try and send you from uh, uh, Zuckerberg's office when you get put into Facebook prison. Don't say that again. That's offensive. We don't like it. Well, well John gets out of prison. oh, Actually, while well, he's still in prison, and he keeps on doing the exact same thing. He's there because of the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and verse one, one through three will tell us that he's going to proclaim the word of God and the testimony of Jesus because that's what he does. He's a Christian. He doesn't let anybody and we ought not let anybody stop us from the proclamation of the gospel. The world is happy with a church that loves what they believe and knows what they believe and is on fire about what they believe as long as they shut up about what they believe and keep it inside the walls of the church. The world is fine with that kind of Christianity. And you have to be willing to be a kind of Christian, like all our examples who got butchered and burned alive and crucified. You have to be willing to follow the example. And we have to be a church who is willing to be a witness despite what the, church, what the world wants to hear. Uh, sorry, tells us they want to hear. Because the world will tell us, you know, you need to expect and respect the fact that you're one among many competing worldviews and this is a pluralistic society, and to have a seat at the table, you need to be very respectful and understand that everybody has an equal truth. You're gonna be told that as Christians, and we're being told that as a church, even by other churches. You need to be very respectful, you need to be very careful, you need to win a seat at the table, you need to to, uh, tip the hat to all of the other establishments. The simple answer is no. Like John, like Paul, like Jesus, like every example we see in the New Testament, when they bite down on us for doing What we were doing, that is sharing the gospel, this is not an excuse to be jerks. This is an excuse to take the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and preach to anyone and whenever you wish, as long as it's not on company time because you've you've sold your time. I'm not going to get into that discussion right now. But anyway, we ought to always be proclaiming and speaking the word of God. We will be the kind of church that said we will uh, not abide by social norms. The whole earth belongs to King Jesus. He purchased it by his blood. His truth is the only truth. His gospel is the only gospel of salvation. The Bible is the only true sacred scripture. His plan for history is the only way history will go. The darkness exists but it is fading away and the true light is shining and will overcome the darkness. Satan and the darkness of his kingdom has literally no defense against the preaching of the gospel. He was issued zero armor at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus when he crushed Satan's head. He was given no armor and no defense for the onslaught of his kingdom that would be coming through the Christian missionaries and evangelists. None whatsoever. We need to believe that and proclaim that so that whether we're persecuted or thrown in prison or some of us go, God willing, to nations where your life is on the line, still there, Revelation twelve eleven would be true of you. They have conquered him, that is the dragon, they, the Christians, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. John's our example here. He's our partner in this. He's calling us forward into it, therefore, and we ought to do that. There's three things that he says he shares with us. He says, first of all, the tribulation, second of all, the kingdom, and third of all the patient endurance. When he says tribulation, I do not believe at this moment that he's referring to, in fact, he can't be sh- referring to a symbol, sorry, a single and singular end point. In, in, uh, a manifestation of tribulation because he's in the first century and he says he is undergoing it. So don't think at this point that when what John's saying is he's a partner in the end time tribulation because he's not. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, the language of tribulation here is speaking of the entirety of the Christian church, the entirety of the Christian uh, age of, of the church between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' coming back. Jesus said in John 16, the same author, John, tells us that Jesus says, that all those, uh, 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 sorry, he says to, to, uh, to the disciples, you will have tribulation in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that really to speak of the tribulation in this sense, there's other senses, but in this sense is kind of just the negative angle of what he's about to say next, which is the kingdom. The age long suffering of the church, we might call the Christian persecution. It ends when Jesus comes back. Don't hold your breath. But then the other side of it that John is also a partner with is the kingdom. And that's what he says next. He's a partner with us in the kingdom. This is a reference, again, to the whole period between Jesus' resurrection and his coming back again. The kingdom was established by Jesus in his first arrival, in his first kingdom. We've been seeing this through the book of Mark, that he establishes his kingdom, that he preaches his coming, that the kingdom is so close you can touch it, and that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is here. But it will be consummated into the eternal state when Jesus comes bodily back again. In the interim, we have this spiritual kingdom that definitely has physical manifestations, but is primarily a spiritual kingdom that Jesus reigns from heaven through his church on earth. So we are partakers with John, and he is a partner with us in the tribulation, as well as the kingdom. Uh, Verse 6 says, of this same chapter, uh, of chapter one, has already said that Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. So that's present tense. There's, there's a kind of present tense manifestation of this kingdom. Chapter five, verse 10 says to Jesus, you, know, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is the same period, as we say kingdom, the period is the same period referred to later in chapter 20 as the millennium, the thousand years. It's a period of symbolic rule. It's a symbolic period of the true and real reign of Christ. And so John is saying, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation, we're in the kingdom and in the patient endurance. In the patient endurance. This means the ability to endure all the sufferings in the tribulation and all of the calls to obedience in the kingdom, both of those things need patient endurance, and we have patient endurance because all of these things go—these three things go together. Do you see? In verse nine, in Jesus, he says that the, the, uh, the, the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus—that is to say, if you have Jesus, you're in a kingdom. If you're in Jesus, though, you'll have tribulation. But if you're in Jesus, you will have the necessary patient endurance to last through whatever this kingdom age, whatever the tribulation throws at you. This is good news that John wants us to believe. In Jesus Christ, whatever our labor, whatever our mission, whatever our service, whatever our life, whatever our sufferings look like, John, the last living apostle, is a partner with us and he is assuring us we will have what we need to make it to heaven's door. John is a partner with us in all that we will be speaking about. Secondly, the very fact that Jesus speaks to his churches. Jesus speaks to his churches. Look at verse 10. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and yada, yada, yada. Now, these seven churches are all in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, Uh, Which is pretty much, you travel north and then head a little bit west from Jerusalem, uh, sort of on top of the Mediterranean Sea. If you're looking at a map in the back of your Bible, it'll sort of be top right-hand corner of the Mediterranean Sea. That area is modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor in the Roman kingdom, in the Roman Empire. And he's writing letters to them. Uh, The the list of the churches follow a mail route that the postman would take, um, and uh, so they're each going to receive a full copy of the book of Revelation, including all of the other six letters and their own letter. Each church is going to receive this revelation. But John tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. By that, he means the first day of the week called Sunday. The Lord's Day, by the end of the sort of New Testament period, the, the Sunday began to be known as the Lord's Day because it was the day that Jesus sanctified to himself by rising up from the dead. It was the day that he appeared to his apostles. It was the day that he then uh, ascended and it was the day that he sent the, uh, uh, that it, uh, he sent the, the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't have a mind blank on the third person of the Trinity. Goodness me! Uh, that he sent the Holy Spirit, rather um, uh, not ascended, but sent the Holy Spirit down on Pentecost, so that Sunday became that day. So that instead of in the old covenant they 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 on the last day of the week rested and worshipped to 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 remember that that creation was finished. In the new covenant, we start our week with worship, remembering that the new creation has just begun. So is the the Lord's day is. Sunday, and that is when Jesus came and spoke to John. In fact, that would be very much on theme, that the Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the day when Jesus covenantally comes to his people who are gathered in the Spirit and speaks to us. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's the Christian day of worship. It's the New Testament Sabbath. And so we should come expectantly on Sundays. Now, note note the encouragement that John gives us John, even though he's alone, like the whole two or three or gathered rule doesn't even apply here, but nonetheless, he's alone on an island, just him in the spirit, worshiping God, and Jesus encourages him by coming personally and through John encouraging the suffering churches that the enthroned Lord of all glory, the firstborn from the dead, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, as we spoke about last week, he meets with and he personally speaks to his people. John wants the church to know that Jesus' heart is towards his people. There's an old Puritan in the 1600s. His name was Thomas Goodwin, and he wrote a book. I'll give you the full title, because he's a Puritan. This is how they title their, their books. The name was The Son of God Sitting at the... Oh, no, sorry, rather. rather. This is, this is the name. It's even longer. I went to the shorter paragraph. It's the longer paragraph. Uh, the Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, colon. The gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his human nature, now in glory, toward his people under all sorts of infirmities, either sin or misery. Now, the heart of that book, and it was an amazing book, there's been some cheap knockoffs ever since, but, but the heart of that book, the glorious message of that book, is the fact that as you think about the enthroned, all glorious, conquering king on the throne, And then you're told, go and pray to him. You know, take all your needs, your failure. Go take it all to Jesus. It can be very intimidating. And it is. And yet there's this comfort to know that Jesus meets with us to speak to us. And Thomas Goodwin's message was that the heart of Christ in heaven, though he's in heaven, he's not far away. Though he's exalted, he's still a a man like us and that he he senses our feelings. Uh, He he is a high priest, not separated, but among his people. He, He had this encouraging tone to say, Jesus is speaking with you. He tenderly loves you and cares for you. This is how we should view church. The king, by his spirit, coming to commune with us and other kingdom people to hear the voice of our king who speaks authoritatively through his word. Just a little clue. This is why John says his voice sounded like a trumpet because trumpets blast before the king makes a message. The king's voice is coming triumphantly and and royally to his people when we gather like this on the Lord's day. When we um. Let's break down our our, our sort of liturgy, I guess, our order of service. When we come in, we all sit down, we open the Bible. One of the deacons or elders reads a, a call to worship over you, usually a psalm. We're reading the call to worship. Think of that as the trumpet blasting, announcing the beginning of the divine king's worship. When we sing, we are exalting Jesus before his throne. Hebrews 12 tells us that when we come to Christ, we are coming to the same congregation that is in heaven. I think there's just this tiny veil of, of physical reality between us and the throngs of heaven when we gather to worship. I, I don't think there's one more holy or less holy position to be in worship, but goodness me, if we got this, I think there'd be more raised hands, more exultant, exuberant voices. Yes, even amongst the guys. We can yell at the, at, 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 at the footy. We can, we can lift up our voices to the Lord Jesus. We are in a kingdom gathering that we are, we are invisibly congregating with the souls that are already in heaven. And we're invisibly congregating before the throne of Jesus Christ himself. And then when the sermon comes, his own word is opened up. And through the voice of a frail man, the voice of the spirit booms and thunders into our hearts. And then we have another opportunity to exalt our king in response to that. And then we have a final reading of the word whereby we as kingdom people are commissioned. Believe what you have just heard. And go and obey what you have just heard. The kingdom must grow. The kingdom of darkness must fall Go and bash down those gates, come back here, we'll see you on Sunday again. That's how we should think of the Lord's gathering on the Sunday in the local church. So the encouraging through all of the encouragement through all of that is that Jesus speaks to his church and we must listen. But next we will see that Jesus is objectively terrifying. Look at verse 12 through 17. There's this whole passage about what John looks and sees in this vision. Now, he's going to see the exact same thing, uh, some of the exact same elements of what Daniel saw in both Daniel 7 when he sees God. He says God had white hair. It was white like wool. Uh, He's going to see, just like the the warrior angel in Daniel 10, uh, John is going to see burnished feet and eyes like fire and and a sash, like a priestly clothing, stuff like that. So he's intentionally taking Old Testament themes, but just just listen to what he says. I turned to see the voice that was speaking, and I saw the lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, meaning kind of human, like a son of man, but, and here's all the ways he's not like a human. He's more than a human. He was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like like snow. He's just scrambling for an explanation here. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So yes, while we should take encouragement that Jesus speaks tenderly to his people and covenantally meets with us, we should still remember that he is not unscary. Jesus is seen by John here And is explained in ways that if we were there, we'd react the same way. We'd drop dead. The one who speaks to us is still a terrifying divine king. Look at all the things that that he lists. He says he was clothed with a long robe with a golden sash. This is to mean that that he he was in priestly clothing. He was like the priest of the Old Testament that would make sacrifice, make atonement, pray for us. And because he's surrounded by the lampstands, he's going to tend to make sure that the churches are staying alight and staying healthy. Now, all of these things that we're going to see, I'm just taking a pause here, all the ways that John explains him, they are all picked up in the letters and repeated in the letters. So in other words, what we're seeing here is not just a random picture of Jesus. He's pictured in many different ways in the book of Revelation. What we're seeing is a very specific set of, a list of, of personality traits and and the ways that he's imaged that relate to him writing the letters to the churches. So at every point that we explain, I'm going to say, and Jesus is writing, therefore, as a priest among his people who care whether our fire goes out or not. Or next, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Some of us have not got to the point where we have gray hair yet. Some of us are gray and it's not yet white. Some of us look back and remember the days when we had hair on our head and it was white. That's just the reality of it. The rest of us are young with thriving hairs. I'm kind of alone in the eldership on that, but I'm not going to dwell there. Now, now here's the point. Here's the point. In, in, in the old world, we didn't used to go down to Kmart and buy hair dye and try and hide the fact that we were going gray. That was a sign of honor. It was a sign of, sign of wisdom and age and, and you know, respect that you would go gray, that, that you, you obviously have wisdom to your person. And so when Daniel sees the Ancient of Days and when Jesus, sorry, when John sees Jesus with white hair, it's not just saying he's old, because he's not really old, he's eternal. He's so old, time stops working on him. He's eternal, he's beyond time. And yet there's this symbol of pure wisdom, pure eternality in this person that he is now looking at, as only God could have. Which means that when he writes his letters to us, he is writing as one with infinite wisdom. He's not like that colleague you have who comes in late with a Starbucks in his hand and after looking at a huge issue you might have in the office or maybe an apprentice that comes on site late, still putting his shoes on, comes on and within half a second thinks he has all the solutions to all the big problems. Right? We all know that guy. I pray you're not that guy. If you can't think of somebody in the office who is that person, it's probably you. That doesn't matter. The point is Jesus is not like some young buck fresh out of seminary writing to all the churches saying, "Who's my issue with all the things you're doing. Now, Jesus is the ancient of days. Jesus is writing as one with infinite wisdom. He is never going to hear you, hear us say, well, actually, we kind of have a reason we do things that way, Jesus. You don't seem to like it, but it's kind of tradition. He's never gonna hear something you ah, didn't think of that. He's infinitely wise, always speaking what we need to hear. Thirdly, his, uh, or something, I don't know what number we're at. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This idea is that his eyes are piercing. Nothing's hidden from his sight. When he looks at his church, he looks with perfect accuracy. When he calls out sin, he does it perfectly. He's not missing the mark. He's not overjudging. He's not under-criticizing. His eyes can see and pierce all things. He writes to the churches in that way. We're also told his feet were like burnished bronze, it's like he had legs that were, were furnished in, sorry, refined in a furnace, John says. This is the exact same thing as we see the warrior angel delivering a message of judgment in Daniel Ten have. I think the picture is that he has these firm, strong, immovable, unbreakable legs and feet. He is firmly planted. Where Jesus is going to be calling frequently in, this, in these letters the church to stand firm and do not be moved and do not be driven back and march forward and be an overcomer, where he's going to command that, he is commanding that as one who himself stands firm and who in his earthly life definitely had a face like flint, it says. He was, he was set to do the master's will. He could not be turned or changed. He was set to do the Father's will and he walked in that way. I think that's what's being pictured here. He has has feet now in his exaltation like he did not have in his humanity, uh, in in his earthly ministry. Back then he had heels that could bleed and be pinned to a cross. He had feet that could be bitten by the serpent. But now he has bronze age fashioned war feet that crush the serpent's head and are not penetrated by a serpent's teeth. He is that man, that son of man, that God writing to his churches. So in other words, he's not like the overweight coach sitting on the sideline, stuffing a hot dog or a chicko roll down his mouth, telling you to do a 20th lap because it's bad to be out of shape this time of season. He's not like that. He's not calling you to do something he does not himself do. He's not calling you to do something he himself has not done. He is Jesus who stands firm and calls the church likewise to stand firm in him. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Some of you might be hikers. You've gone and you've stood under waterfalls. Maybe you've been overseas to some of the great and tremendous waterfalls. And and when you get near them, it is just, it is deafening. You can't hear anything else. This is what John is getting at, that Jesus' voice has power and so much authority that it drowns out every other voice such that no other voice should be listened to if it contradicts what Jesus says, Jesus writes to the churches with all of this authority, with this, with this focus that we should listen to only his voice. Every other voice should just drown out into, into echoes behind us where we should be listening to Jesus. We don't go to the next guru. We don't pick up the next book at Kurong. We don't try and find out the next hip way that we should do church despite what Jesus says. Friends, the, the most healthy thing we can be is a church that meets the marks of what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. He is the one who speaks with divine authority. We also see very much related, from his mouth came out a two-edged sword. This sword is his voice, which is the word of God, the scriptures that John would then write down, that the other apostles wrote down. In other words, the sword is how he communicates what he wants as a king. Revelation 19, we see Jesus on the white horse riding through in victory, and it says, from his mouth comes that sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule. Uh, sorry, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread them like a winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, "King of Kings and Lord of Lords." This is warrior Jesus. This is king leading the, 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 the forces into battle Jesus. But what we see coming out of his mouth is, again, the word of God, his own word. This picture is showing us Jesus in his current status now. It was current for John. It's current for us now. Um, that, uh, that he is riding throughout the world, leading his church to victory, building his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, despite many sufferings, persecutions, and oppositions. It's not all daisies. But our king is on the throne and he is on the white horse. And the, the, the sword from his mouth is his voice in the scriptures. It's his absolute standard. It's his absolute truth. And he judges people according to whether they accept or reject his word. So in other words, the word of God, the Bible, coming forth from Jesus' mouth, which we preach and we understand, is the tool which he measures nations against and is the tool with which he fights his opponents with, and it is the tool with which he measures churches with. So he opens and closes churches through the power of his word. He rises and falls nations, depending on how they they respond to the word of God. So this means that this book that we have, this Bible, we should think of it, and some of, us, some of us need to move on from this. Some, some of us still think of it as it's just a great collection of mug quotes and little things to print on pens and shirts, you know? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's a bunch of really cute phrases that we use, sometimes we go to for encouragement. No, it's more than that. It's the book to be studied and known so that by it we can know Jesus. We saw that last week. But also, it's the tool that God is using to judge and rule the nations, It is the sword coming from Jesus' mouth. So when Jesus writes the letters to his churches, he writes as the judge of all. And the sword is his pen. That is how he is writing to the churches. Also, we see that his face was shining in full strength like the sun. This is, often in the Old Testament, we see that the glory of God is shown as like a fire or, or light or something basically invisible because it's so dazzling, something you can't really look on. And here we're seeing that the glory of God is now in the face of Jesus Christ so that you cannot look at Jesus face to face at the moment. It's dazzling. It's fearfully, piercingly shining. uh, Paul will write this in 2 Corinthians 3 through 4 and say that now the gospel of God is shining through the face of Jesus in the gospel. So that now to know the gospel is to be peering into the glory of God. But John is seeing it in his vision. He looks at Jesus' face, and it's the glory of God shining. And so, of course, it makes a lot of sense. John now says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. If he'd said anything else, we wouldn't have believed him. Nah. Didn't believe it, John. Oh, you fell to one knee, you gave him a handshake. No, nope, you died, didn't you? We would have seen right through it. So he's honest. I saw him, and I fell down as if I was dead. The exact same as Daniel back in chapter 10 when he sees the angel like that. This is John. This is Jesus' friend. This is this is the disciple that Jesus loved. Like if anybody on earth would think he is Jesus' buddy and not be not have any need to be afraid of Jesus, it's John. But John himself, the closest person to Jesus at the time that this is being written, falls down like he was dead. Now Jesus rests, uh, puts his hand on his shoulder, of course, but we need to remember that it is true And we must value the fact that Jesus speaks to us as a church, tenderly, intimately, covenantally, lovingly. But we must not forget that the one who speaks is the one depicted in this vision. He is scary, he is terrifying, and we ought not blaspheme him by thinking small, light, riding on a donkey, meek and mild, Jesus' thoughts anymore. Those are not appropriate for him. Fourthly, Jesus conquered death. Look at verse 17 and 18. Second half of verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus just said to John, Fear not, do not be afraid. John has no need to be afraid of Jesus and neither does any Christian. Anybody who has come to Jesus for refuge and safety and salvation need never be afraid of Jesus. But the, the crucial question is why? Is it because Jesus is not very scary? No, he's a fearful judge. The reason you do not need to be afraid of Jesus is because he has died and come alive. He controls now who dies. He unlocks the grave and chooses who dies and who lives. In other words... All of the wrath that you deserved, all of the sin that you had, which meant that you need to be afraid of Jesus, is now dealt with and Jesus is on the other side of the grave of that. Yes, I kill people, Jesus is saying. Yes, I have the control over who lives and dies. Yes, I'm the judge. Yes, I will send people to hell. But John, that's not you. Don't you be afraid. Don't you be fearful in my presence. Come near. I am alive now. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. I conquered death. I've conquered sin. You have nothing more to fear because Jesus, as scary as he is, is not against the Christians. He is for you. Think about this in the context of the the suffering local church that he's writing to. They may have the king of kings called Caesar after them, but the true king of kings who squashes that guy with a flick is behind them, is with them, is for them, is never against them. He says, I'm the first and the last. In other words, he's the beginning and the end. As far as salvation goes, as far as being made right with God, as far as not having to fear death goes, everything is in Jesus. You have no reason to smile at death if you are outside of Jesus. The only way that death is no longer a fearful end to your life and a beginning of suffering is if you have believed in Jesus Christ. It's all in him. He is the living one. He died, and behold, he says, I am alive forevermore. Jesus has life in himself. He will always be the crucified one because he'll never remove his own scars. That happened. It can't be changed. He was the crucified one. He will always be the crucified one. But he will not always be the dead one. He's no longer dead. He's risen. He is alive. He is resurrected. And he says, I'm alive forevermore. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And some of you, maybe you've been invited, maybe you're not super familiar with, with, the, with the gospel, even if you might say you're in a Christian family, wherever you're at, if you're un, seeking to understand the core message of the Christian scriptures, it is this, that you have sinned and are guilty of and are deserving of punishment. You have sinned against God's holy law and his holy standard, and you deserve to be punished. And if God was to do that to everybody, there'd be nothing wrong with that. That would be just But in his mercy and in his grace, God has sent his own son in the person of Jesus to live a perfect life, which we could never live, to die a death that we should have died, and then to rise up from the grave victorious over it so that now anybody who trusts in him and calls on him to save them will be saved. That is a promise from God to you because Jesus has done that now. Though we physically suffer and though we physically die, Death is not the entrance into suffering and hell. Death is a doorway into eternal bliss with Jesus. Death now loses its sting. Death is not a great enemy against us anymore, though it still takes us all down. It is a defanged enemy. This is the good news of the gospel, that though you die in Christ, you will live forevermore because you are forgiven of all of your sins by what Jesus has done. Therefore, fear not death. Fear not Jesus. He is terrifying. But if you have faith in him, he is your life. And even though you die, you will never truly see death. Fifthly, we see, and look at verse 20. This is our last verse. Verse 20, we see that Jesus is amidst the churches. As for the mystery of the seven stars, Jesus says, that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is standing there, and he can, John can see seven star-looking things in his right hand, and, uh, and he's saying that they, and, and, and around him, like the Old Testament priest used to do, around him was these seven lampstands. So it's think of seven-pronged uh, candlestick holder type things. Um, now Jesus is there walking among them. This is to say that he's ministering to them. He's, he's actively engaged in their upkeep and, uh, and ministering to, to, these, uh, to these lampstands. But we're, we're given the first clue that the stars in his right hands are symbolizing the angels of the churches. That is to say, there's an angel that belongs to each church. Some people want to take this and say, well, that means that in the heavenly places, we have a Hope Reformed Baptist Church angel. We just planted down on the Gold Coast, there's now a Gold Coast angel. Don't think that's what it means. Don't think that's what John would be trying to mean. In fact, it would be very strange if God gave the message to Jesus according to verse one through three, that God gave the message to Jesus who gave it to angels to give it to John to give back to an angel to go and deliver to a church and who would end up preaching the message? The elders or the messengers of the churches. The message deliverer of each church is the preaching pastor or the eldership. Those who, those who are entrusted with the teaching responsibility in a church. The eldership are the angels, and that is what Jesus is meaning. I hold the pastors in my hand. They're not free to teach whatever they want. They're not free to abuse or lead or, 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 or do whatever they want in the church as much as they want. They are accountable to me. I hold them. That's what Jesus is saying. And yet, through all of their difficulty in leading, I'm with them. As a pastor, that's a great, great and tremendous encouragement. Jesus holds us in his right hand. And yet, uh, we, we then see the next part of the imagery, that the lampstands that Jesus is standing in the midst of symbolize churches. So that symbolically, when a church starts, or when a church ends, a lampstand is and is not in Jesus' midst. The idea of all of this is that Jesus is, um, uh, is near to and intimate with his church. Uh, in the Old Testament, now a little bit about the imagery here, note that the church is the lampstand, <coughs> And not the lamp itself. Or in other words, we're the candlestick holder, we're not the candle itself. I think that taking um, imagery from like Zechariah and other Old Testament things, I think that what should be um, maintained is that the, the fire, the candle, is representative of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus would say to the church, You are the light of the world. Don't ever light a candle, put it under a basket. We'll see more of this next week in the book of Ephesus. But nonetheless, what is being said is that the church is where the Holy Spirit manifests his presence. In the book of Revelation, the idea of the lampstand also stands for witness, right? The, the proclamation. People can see something when, when it's on fire, usually. The lampstand is there giving witness to something. So it is that the, 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 the fact that the church is symbolized as a lampstand is that we are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells and we are the place where the gospel message and proclamation and witness to the nations and to all people comes from. But we are ourselves the candlestick holder and not the candle itself. And Jesus is in our midst. In other words, he's the source of the power. Jesus, in the midst of the churches, is the source of the power for those churches. He is the source of our gospel proclamation. He is the source of strength to maintain through tribulation and difficulty. He is the source of purity. He is the source of the lampstand's light. In Jesus' presence and in the heavenly places, we have, symbolically, I know, spiritually, I know, but we have, as this church, we have a lampstand. We will see next week that it is removable. Jesus does close down churches. But our prayer and our labor and our toil and our zeal needs to be to the fact that there is a significance in the local church so that we must labor to always maintain the purity and the light and the proclamation and the, and the stability of the lamb stand that is Hope Reformed Baptist Church. If you call this place home, that's your responsibility. Serve in, maintain, think highly of the local church. Some of us, that's the application tonight you need to see how highly Jesus thinks of the local churches. He wasn't just in like a big fire and said, oh, you know, it's the church, it's the global church. No, local churches are symbolized specifically and personally to Jesus. Some of us attend when we can. Some of us think of the church as a nice place sometimes to get a free feed, but in and out. Some of us will put it at a very low priority. But to Jesus Christ, the king of all the earth, ruler of the kings on earth, Sitting on his throne, he walks amidst the lampstands. To him, it is important enough to personally relate to local churches. We ought to think very highly and always be involved in a local church. Jesus is the secret, if you want to call it that, of a long, persevering ministry of a local church. Which means that whatever the makeup here, and and every 80 years or so, the membership of a church will entirely change because either everybody's dead or we've all moved in and out of different places. The membership of a church can change. The location of a church can change. The preaching past can change. The eldership can change in a moment. None of that is what gives the church its significance and power. What gives the church its significance and power is the fact that by faith we proclaim and believe what John has said, that Jesus is in our midst. That is the significance of the local church. With Jesus in our presence, the last thing I want to do is invite people who do not currently believe in Jesus, know Jesus. This Jesus that we're looking at is entirely foreign to you. You you thought Jesus just got you to heaven and let you live your life whatever you want. You know, he's not that much of a threat. Some of you have not truly met Jesus and tonight is the night that you need to put your faith in him. Meaning you need to ask him to save you. You need to entrust your sin to him and be forgiven for the first time ever. Doesn't matter what other people think. Doesn't matter whether other people think you're already a Christian or if they think you could never possibly become a Christian. If you're a sinner and you have not yet belonged to Jesus Christ by faith, tonight is the night for that. And I'm gonna pray for that. So let's all pray. Father God, is it a... It is a glorious and amazing thing to behold Jesus as John has seen him, high and lifted up gloriously in all of this manifold majesty in these truly glorious, grand visions. We pray, Lord God, that that would not be lost on us With things that are potentially confusing, we would not lose the core image of what is being shown, which is that Jesus is glorious, and yet he is gracious to us. And for all those that believe in him, he saves them. And all those that believe are joined into churches, and he meets with us to speak to us. Father God, in the tribulation, in the kingdom, may we have patient endurance for all things, Would you give to us a brotherly and sisterly love? Would you give to us a zeal that would build Christ's kingdom? And Lord God, for those who tonight do not yet know Jesus, whose hearts have been up until this moment dead in their sin, uh, opposed to the gospel, hating towards your, your, your law and your standards, would you now give them a new heart that loves your righteousness, that is sorry for their sin, that desires to follow after you, and that desires to have Jesus Christ as their salvation? Please, Lord God, give hearts like that this evening. Save souls in our midst, and would you bless us in this week as we go out to glorify our Lord, God, and King, Jesus Christ the Saviour. And in his name, everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.